0: About about three weeks ago, I was asked, somebody called me up and mentioned that maybe somebody should come speak in yeshiva. There's a, a big speaker out there, a famous speaker, and they mentioned that they would sponsor it and maybe this person will come speak in the yeshiva. And I politely declined. I wasn't mean to the person. I said, you know, we're not such a speaker type place. In general, guys have their schedules to gather our guys for a speech is not always the thing to do. It doesn't always resonate by the guys. I didn't think it was a good idea. About a couple of days later, my, my friend Yochanan Gordon, somebody I'm Yochanan Badner, somebody I'm close to, my friend Yochanan Badner, who learned in this Yeshiva. He was learned with my son, he mentored and learned with Hudi. When Yehudi was in Yeshiva for Rabbi Yochanan Badner learned with Hudi. My kids are friendly with his kids. He actually learned in Waterbury. And he mentioned that he has somebody that he appreciates and mentioned this person coming to speak in the Yeshiva. So what I did was, is I went online and I listened to a But And I want to tell you what I was looking for, why I said yes, when typically in the last many years, years ago I brought speakers to yeshiva, I don't do it. I frankly, guys have their own schedules. I don't want to, guys ke- ke- are very strong to their own schedules. It wasn't easy to gather the guys, anything out of guys' schedules. It's not always so easy to gather the guys. There are things going on. So, why I, so I usually say no. Why did I say yes here? And I, wanna, I want to I wanna hear. Rabbi Harowitz, I'm very interested in hearing. I'll tell you what drew me from hearing his own, hearing online. I want to say as follows. What draws me to Ray Shapiro's learning of Torah is that it's very personal. His Torah, he connects to it in an authentic and real way, it's his own story. Theoretically when you learn a black Gemara with a person you're, you're meeting their story. Two people learn the best way, guys talk out how to bring out their essence. The best way is learn Gemara honestly, but not force, not pressure to say a Svara, the kasha people. you ever were in a Shia and you asked the kasha? I you'd say, oh, say better. I would say, what do you mean say better? <laughs> Say better really means say my type of thinking. I said, no, 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 no. say better, I'm sorry, this is my thoughts. So us say better. The Torah is each unique, we, we, we're learning Misahtas Tisgitim, the remarkable Gemara that when Hashem was asked by Rabbi Yasser, what are they learning in Shemaim? And he said, Hashem's learning the sug you're learning pilegish Pegiva. And he asked him, what does Hashem say on the Pasuk love love pelagshay? And Hashem quoted a machleikas. Revev Yasa and Frek the Gemara, is Hashem not sure? Now, I want to say like this. Did you ever wonder in Shas, there's a machleikas Abaya in Ravah. Maybe Ravah changed his mind. It's been quite a long time. It must be so awkward. In Shamayim, if Abaya once said, you know, Ravah, after all this thousand thousand years, to these hundreds of years, I've changed my mind, I agree to you. So then in Shas we have it wrong. For eternity, it says Abaya Omer and Rav Omer. One second, Abaya no longer sticks to that truth. And the shot, of course, is that whenever in Shas you see a name, Abaya Omer and Rav Eimer, it means that the perfect Abaya will always say this. Abaya is supposed to say this. Tire through the prism of Abaya's experiences. Of Abaya is going to always say this. Abaya Eimer means if he ever agrees to Ravah, he's no longer Abaya, he became Ravah. Abaya is supposed to say this. An Abaya lived as an Abaya will always say this. When Hashem says, and he says, Rav Yasser says this, Rav says, says this, means that Hashem's Torah, through shining through Rav Yasser, is supposed to teach us this. And all of us have a chilek in Tyra. Hashem's Tyra, and through our honest pursuit, honest question, honest understanding, we bring Tyra out to the world. So what drew me, what I want to say drew me to Reb Naftali Horowitz and why I thought that it would be such a great... What I want to hear, and I want my friends, want everybody here to hear this Yid, is I felt very strongly from the speech. And when somebody's speaking at us, telling us, guys, th- this is what you should do, th- things like that, I don't, then I don't need speeches. When somebody's sharing their own Torah, their own journey, every word on Chumash. when you hear Rabbi Shapiro, he's sharing, he's giving you a piece of his soul. He's sharing Torah as it flowed through him, that's what I sensed in Rev. Harwitz. <coughs> Rev. Harwitz told me, if I could say over it, fascinated me. He wrote a book, a beautiful book that I intend to read, and he told me that he didn't put in so many personal stories. That's always a question. The more, uh, often, when you and I sense in this person, in this that I was zeichet to meet today for the first time, but I was to hear the share already a few weeks ago. What I see is when somebody tells you a Dvar Torah, Shapiro tells us a Torah, you've met the man. Because he's not, he's not talking at us, he's, he's, he's giving an honest account through his, you could tell Rabbi Shapiro and his experiences from listening to his shiurim, you could learn him, you, you feel you know him. That's the most pure Torah. That's a Torah that resonates, that's ideas that resonates the, 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 the shear I heard online I'm not the expert in the world but the shear I heard online resonated by me and I wanted to hear I trust my friend of Yochanan, Gordon, of Yochanan Badner but as well I wanted to say that the, the shear I heard it passed this test of somebody who's saying honestly how they view things you're getting a sense of the person's experience so I want to thank Rav came with Yochanam, Badner, they came, from, they came from five towns, it's quite the journey. I want to thank Renaf Haaretz for coming down, for agreeing to speak to the Hevra. I want to thank the guys for altering your schedules and coming to hear the I think it will be worth all our while. I want to say that we were Zoyche Sunday to hear from Rai Sanchan. He's not given hyperbole, he's a very honest person as the guys heard. And he said to me, right, Sunshine, I spoke to him today, and he says he sees the yeshiva, the guys are in the best places he's seen as a chabura. He was in our yeshiva two days a week for many years, and he says this year the level which I agreed to is at a height as a collective group, the highest he's seen in yeshiva in all the years. I agreed to him that there's so much process and growth. I sat there at that group on Sunday thinking... Just, I was impressed with Ryan Sunshine, but equally, I was nishtayman from the cover. The questions the guys asked, the honest discussions, it was incredibly refreshing, the whole sophisticated dialogue. So I want to thank the guys for that. And without further ado, I want to welcome Rav to share the return.
1: I want to thank Rabbi Kalish for running around the campus lobbying you all to be here. The English language is a word. The word is superfluous. Anyone knows what it means? Extra, extra no. unnecessary, unneeded. I feel utterly superfluous standing here at the podium next to Rabbi Kalish when I doubt there's anything I could share with you that he hasn't already shared with you or couldn't share with you if he took the podium. When I'm not at a podium, um, I'm a managing director on Wall Street. Baruch Hashem, Yochan and I manage a very, very large wealth management practice at Morgan Stanley where I'm a managing director. Been on Wall Street now for over 20 years. Before that, I was in corporate finance. And the reason why I'm here is what we—a term we use in Wall Street, which is leverage. Leverage means that you take a dollar, you borrow three, you invest it in Tesla, goes up 100%. If you davened well, well, depends when you bought it. And then you don't just earn the money on the dollar, you earn it on the three that you borrowed as well. A person has X amount of time in their life. And that's it. We all have 24 hours a day. It's very possible that when a person comes up one day and they live 70, 80, 90 years, they get credit for 70, 80, 90 years. And then there are going to be people that come up like Rabbi Kalish who are going to be given credit for more years than Adam or or Musa Shelach lived. They're going to say, Rabbi Kalish, your 7,000 years on planet Earth were absolutely unbelievable. And he's going to say, what are you talking about? I only lived 120 years. And they're going to say, what are you talking about? You spent one hour talking to 85 boys. That's 85 hours out of one hour. And if that's not leveraged, then what is? And then we can take that further because in that one hour which became 85 hours, you were mashpiyah on people who went out and were Mashbi on others and you multiply that, what we call compounded returns, and you did live thousands and thousands of years. So, to me this is the best investment. Investing in what I would have wanted someone to invest in me when I was sitting where you're sitting right now. And perhaps to share with you some things that I had to learn the hard way, you probably will have to learn it the hard way too, maybe you already did, but be as it may, let's see if there's something here that isn't going to be utterly superfluous. Let me just start with a little background. I grew up as a foreigner. What does that mean? Well, from the day that I was born, I was told who I am and what's expected of me. I am a direct descendant of the founders of the Hasidic movement. Anyone who's Hasidish would know Naftali Horowitz was the famous Reb Tully of Rupshitz, who's my great-grandfather, straight down. Normally, Melech, Rebbe Melech of Lezhensk, the Koshintz of Magid, the Bal Shem Tov, you name it. There isn't... You throw a stone in Williamsburg, you're going to hit one of my cousins, especially if you hit a rabbi. It's not possible. Yet, so, in that world, I never really fit in. I just felt the box was too tight for me. What I must wear, what I'm allowed to do, I just, it didn't work. Coupled with the fact that my father threw me into litvashi yeshivas. And there, everyone made fun of me because I was a blue-blood chassid. So, the chassidim made fun of me because I was a litvak, and the litvaks made fun of me because I was a chassid. My rosh yeshivas all convinced me, or tried to, that I was going to be a rosh yeshiva one day. That's why I was on this world. I had Baruch Hashem the brain for it, And I loved learning, but my heart told me otherwise. My heart told me that that's not what I'm supposed to be doing on this world. And I was always a misfit because no matter how many times they try to convince me, I just didn't work. But I went through the system. I went to Brisk. I went to Lakewood. I did everything that I should have done until one day my heart told me that that's not what I'm here for. It was difficult growing up as a misfit. It just was. It's hard. Because I was wearing blue shirts, my Hasidic cousins made fun of me because I had a litvish Havara. I mean, imagine, I, I was—I will never forget, I was 12 years old. My Zayd and Rabioyl, title bound, the Sat Marebbe, were like best friends. And as a little boy, I went to Rabioyl consistently for Shabbos. And my mother bought me when I was a kid. I always had a dream. I wanted to own a Pierre Kadern suit. That was like the best company. I don't even know if it exists anymore. And the Pierre Kadern suit had gold buttons with P and C on it. Well, I was into Shachris in Kyrgyz Yol one hour when the boys basically took me outside and ripped off all my gold buttons because only a shagget wears a gold button. The rest of my Shabbos, I wore no buttons on my jacket. And then after Shabbos, my mother was very upset about it. And she went back to the store and they gave a new Pirka in their buttons. And I said, no, if Tati's taking me back to Monroe, let's just put on regular buttons because I don't want to go through this again. So I think the first lesson that I learned in life is that you have to find who you are. I wrote a book called You Revealed. When I submitted the book to Art Scroll, Gedali called me up and said, We love the book. I'm like, but we hate the title. I said, fine. I'll call Feldheim. He goes, what do you mean? You don't understand, Gedalia? I wrote the book because of the title. I didn't write a book and title it. I wrote a book about a title. And I said, I'll make you a bet, Gedalia, that if we don't sell out the first printing, I'll change the name of the book. I changed the cover, by the way. Anyone who saw my first version, which they created, I didn't like. So I changed the cover for the second printing. But the book's name stayed, and he called me up after the seventh or eighth or ninth printing and said, you will probably write about the cover. And the reason why I wrote the book is because the thousands of people that I've met in this world that are utterly miserable, depressed, sick and tired of life, burnt out, call it whatever you want, are living life as someone else, period. Somebody told them, this is the way you should live life. Somebody told them, this is what you should become. Why are you an accountant? My father always wanted to be an accountant. Why are you an accountant? All my friends went into accounting. I'm 44 years old. I'd rather shoot myself than see another Excel spreadsheet. How did I get here? I have no idea. But I don't belong here. And then society will tell you what you should look like, what you should wear, where you should go. Right? They'll lay it all out for you. It's on billboards, it's on the internet, it's your friends, it's your relatives, and everybody has an opinion. And one day you wake up and you say, who am I and how did I get here? This we call a midlife crisis. Some people have it at 27, some people have it at 47, some people have it at 67. If you have it at 57 and you're wealthy enough, you buy a Ferrari, maybe you divorce your wife, you have hair implants, I don't know what you do. You have it at 27, you freak out. Because you never lived a day as who you were. Who you are. So I wrote a book about you. Hakodesh Baruch Hu created you to be you and only you. Not me, not Rabbi. Because if he wanted another Rabbi Kalish, he would have created two. But that would have been superfluous. And the first thing I realized is that I can only be myself. You don't like my blue shirts. You don't like my little Shavara. You don't like that I'm in Wall Street. Well, that's your problem. Until this day, I don't care. I honestly learned not to care. That doesn't mean that I don't care what my Rob thinks, that I don't care what my wife thinks. That would be pretty bad. But at the end of the day, I take in information and I see if this fits who I am. I get calls all the time. Come speak here. Come speak here. Come do this. Come do that. Get involved in this. Get involved with in that. And when I was younger, I would have said, yes, 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 yes. Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm just supposed to say yes. And then one day I learned the magic word called, word called no. What do you mean no? I just don't feel like that's me. I just thought who I am. Satmar called me up and asked me to speak out against smartphones. Well, I have two of them. <laughs> Talk about how bad it is. But I have two of them. I know there are things that are bad about smartphones. But I don't think the biggest problem in our world today is smartphones. I just don't. I'm sorry. But you're so convincing, can't you? No, the answer is no, it's not who I am. We are living in a generation which has more wealth, pleasure, conveniences than if you took all the wealth in the history of mankind that was in the world, cumulatively, it wouldn't equal up the amount of wealth that there is today in existence. Klaus Roll today is well. I mean, when I grew up, he's a millionaire. My, my kid came up from Yeshiva and says Tati, my friend told me that you're a millionaire. I said, I hope not. That would be pretty bad. He goes, Why? What's a million dollars today? A house and bar, a park, even with a mortgage, is a million dollars. I mean, today you're a schnorr if you're a millionaire. What are you, a millionaire? Now oh, they're throwing around numbers. 100 million, 500 million, billion. By the way, they're real. We know. We see this all day. Oh, I just sold my business. I'm 28 years old. I need help. Yeah, what did you sell for? 97 million. Okay, but I'm going to have to pay tax. So 72 million. When I was a kid, there was nobody that I knew of that had $72 million. So we have so much. What you, Whatever you want. Go to pomegranate, go to you want this, what I was a schmalt herring and pickled herring, right? That's it, those are your choices. That's it, today, I mean, I'm asking you. Seriously, seriously, you could have a whole room of just herring. <laughs> Can I ask you a super question? Yes. We should be the happiest generation in history, right? <clears throat> we should be walking around, just, our faces should like hurt from smiling. Right? Can I ask you a question? So why Prozac is one of the best selling drugs in America? You don't even know what that's for, but it's for people that are salad pusses and they have a hard life. They're, they're down. They're depressed. Right? It's all over the place. Therapists are booked salad. Salad. You can't get anybody. People call me up all the time because I have connections. Could you get me in with this one? Why are we not the happiest generation? My grandfathers, if they lived through a day and they weren't killed in a pogrom, they didn't die of cholera or some other horrible disease or smallpox, that was a successful day. I made it. Today? I'm serious. Think about it. Why? Why are we the happiest generation? Why are people depressed and anxious and down and burnt out? So the answer, Rebbe Levi Yisakov tells us, and my holy pious Rebbe Rabbi cousin Hashem Yimkun Dama'i, say the same thing. He says that they say that the source of all depression is when a person's free will is taken away from them. When a person is oppressed, whether consciously or self-consciously. That is the source of depression. Simcha Sachayim comes when a person feels that they have the power to make choices. When you take that away from somebody, says Rabbi Yitzchak, which is the essence of what a person is, the power to choose right from wrong, the power to choose how I live my life, when you surrender that... That is the source of all depression. When you spend your life living like somebody else, for somebody else, because of somebody else, when you are not authentically you, at some point it's going to catch up to you. You may get away with it for a year or two or three, but at some point you're going to start to (coughs) decompose inside. I don't think anything I just said is a chiddush. I just want to give you all chizuk. That if you feel different than what you see around you, maybe outside of this yeshiva or maybe even inside of this yeshiva. If you feel like you perhaps don't fit in, good. You are an individual. And believe me, Everybody is an individual, and we're all here for a very, very different purpose. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu created everybody exactly the way they were supposed to be created, with every single characteristic that they need to bring about the rectification of this world through what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave to each of us. Nobody in this room is superfluous. And we will only achieve our purpose in life when we embrace our individuality. The altar of Kelim says an unbelievable thing. We make a big deal about Ke'ish echad, echad, shvus. we were like one, we were like one. The altar of Kelim says, Greater than what I ha'kadosh baruchu did for us in Sinai that he was ma'achir us as one unit? Did he do later on in the Torah when he multiple times counts us as individuals to remind us that the world is not one unit, that the world consists of individuals. So yes, Klai Yisrael as a unit has a mission, but it's a mission that's carried out by individuals and to embrace, the rabbi used the word before, self-acceptance, that I am what I need to be and my job here is to be the best version of me possible. I learn from other people, they inspire me, but I'm not him and he's not me. If you do that, every single person could change the world. Because the world needs what every single one of us has as an individual. The second lesson that I learned in life is that the real pleasures of life hardly ever could be purchased with a credit card or money. The reason why, one of the reasons why I didn't go into Rabbanus was I grew up very, very poor. And poverty, especially when you're really at the bottom of the totem pole. Whether it was yeshiva, my, my friends all had 10-speed bikes. Today, 10-speed bike, you're a shnara. Now they have 20, 30, 40. I don't even know how many speeds they put on bikes today. I had a red Schwinn girls' bike that I inherited from my sisters. It was a one-speed bike. It was a girls' bike and it was red. So, that's not fun. I stole my father's Zafi Kaiman. i remember when I was 11 or 12, and I asked for a new bike. And my father said to me, you deserve a new bike. My father took me to Toys R Us, and there it was, a light blue, gorgeous, 10-speed, boys' bike, and I was just staring at it, and I was like dreaming, pulling up the yeshiva finally, looking like Anything other than a Schnara. And it was $90 or $80. And I said, Tati, that's the bike I want. And then my father says, but this one's on sale. It was $20 less. It was a three speed girls' bike, a Huffy. And I looked at my father and I knew that $20 was a big deal. And I said, Tati, I'll take the one on sale. So I drove a girl's bike. you Come to my house, you're all welcome to see it. Hanging on the back of my garage is a $3,700 all carbon Kestrel bike with 29 speeds. <laughs> <laughs> it weighs the minimum, there's a limit. You have to, the bike has to weigh a certain amount, otherwise it doesn't fit, you know how to race it. You can literally pick this bike up with your pinky. You don't even have to pedal. You sit down and it flies. I've ridden it four times. That's my trophy My first boy's bike It's hanging on the back wall Okay Anybody wants to borrow it Come right over It's a beautiful bike It really is It's just a gorgeous bike Now Where was I? You grow up poor And I mean really poor I once had a client, her name was Phyllis Schreiber, Aleha Scholin. Joel doesn't even know her, she passed away before we met. Phyllis came to my office, her son was my client, and she says to me, I need to find a new financial advisor. She was 92 years old. So I said, Phyllis, what's wrong with your old financial advisor? She says, you know, he's been my financial advisor for 65 years. I said, "You had it." To... Yes. How old is he? He's ninety-four. I said, "So what's wrong?" He's starting to lose it a little. <laughs> so I said, "Okay." So we talked for a while, and then she says to me, "I really like you." She says, "But I have one problem." Can I be honest? I said, "Sure." She says, "I know you deal with big shots." Her son was my client. I know you have billionaire clients. She goes, "I'm just..." A poor woman. She had three and a half million dollars. Phyllis, Phyllis, my dear Phyllis. Let me tell you a story. When I was nine, when I was a kid, there wasn't a wall in Borough Park I didn't climb. I climbed everything. Walls, barbed wire, fences, you name it. When they needed someone to break into the kitchen in yeshiva, it was me. I was so skinny, I could take out a cinder block and slide right through this, this video of me doing this, by the way, in Tamima. sliding through. They they said, "How did anyone get into this kitchen?" And there was one. And they said, "Nobody can get through a cinder block until they set up a camera and they have me coming through the cinder block." My wife doesn't like when I tell these kids my kids these stories. So, one Shabbos afternoon, I climbed the wall and I tore my pants. And what I knew this would do to my mother was. I knew my mother couldn't afford to buy me another pair of pants. I know for some of you this may be hard to understand and some of you won't, but the, the trepidation of me having to out- tell my mother that I tore my pants was unbelievable. So I hid in my room, and then after Shabbos, I did what every nine-year-old would do. I Elmer glued my pants together. I thought nobody would ever know. Any of you ever use Elmer's glue even? It definitely doesn't work on pants. I put it all together really nicely and I put it into my drawer between two books, very chacham. Of course, it's stuck to the book, but that's a whole other story. And then I figured next Friday I'll take it out. I don't know where. Nobody will notice. Well, guess what? It didn't work. So I said to Phyllis, I said, if you think somebody who wants Elmer glued their pants together will ever think that three and a half million dollars isn't all the money in the world, then you don't know who I am. And she looked at me. and She says, okay, you're my guy. So, when you grow up poor, all you want is money. That's all you want. You want that carbon bike. You want a new Tesla. You want a big mansion. You want a watch collection. You want to be able to get out and say to the world, I'm not poor. That's it. Hey, I'm rich. I'm not poor. I'm not that poor kid who drives a girl's bike. That's not me. (laughs) That was him. No, I'm Mr. Who-knows-what. And you think that that's going to make you happy. But I already told you that the only reason to do that is because you think living like somebody else is what's going to make you happy. Well, I started that way. Trust me. At one point, I had eight watches. I had Two paddocks, an AP if you know what that stands for. I had a Breitling. I had two Breuges. I had a Rolex. I had it all. Three watch winders. Three. And then one day I woke up and realized that I'm not an octopus and that I don't need. I don't even have a watch in my hand now. I have a watch. Don't worry. So, one day I woke up and realized that none of this was making me one iota happy. Not only that, I was looking at my clients and I was seeing misery upon misery. Divorces, messed up kids, people who lost their minds. As I write in my book, which I hope, I'm going to leave a copy over here, I have heard the words, we were so much happier when we had so much less from so many of my clients, it's not even funny. I counsel multi billionaire families, and all we deal with all day is fighting and strife and hatred and all the problems that you can't even imagine. Now I'm not saying I'm not saying that you cannot find happiness with money, but you won't find happiness with money. If you think that buying yourself the next who knows what is what it's all about. And then one day I realized that the the Satan tries to get us to buy into artificial fake pleasure. The next one, the next one. I got my first new car. I'll never forget it. The new car smell. I couldn't even believe that I own new car smell. It's like, it's not possible. My father, I love Shalom, never had a car with electric windows because it was always a little cheap at the end. With the, I got my first car with electric, I couldn't believe it. I, I'm driving, and it has new car smell. One car, one car. It was a Toyota Camry, L-E, 1989. <laughs> I got my second car. The pleasure lasted uh, two or three weeks. By the time I got my third car, I realized it's not working anymore, so maybe I should get a nicer car. Trust me, there's never going to be a feeling. Let me ask you all a question. Have any of you ever done anything incredibly meaningful in your life? What was it? Uh... A hike? Yeah. Give me something more meaningful. <laughs> <laughs> Come on. Where you fell, where you fell, this is why I'm here. Have any of you ever done that? What? You came to this sashimi. Anyone else? Stand up. Yeah. stand up. Stand up, stand up, What's your name? <laughs> Ruben. When did you finish? Close your eyes. Remember it? Tell me about it. What did it feel like when you stood up there? I it was surprised when I had 12 people and stepped back in the room. It felt really fulfilled. Feeling now? Yeah. yeah. Out. Great. Uh, Sit down. Yeah. <laughs> Any of you have had a yeah. What? Stand <gasps> up. One experience where you did something for a special needs child that you know at that moment, this
0: is
1: why God put me on this world. twice. you don't want to do twice. How many of you have ever eaten a really amazing steak at a very expensive restaurant? Anyone? Oh, yeah. Where'd you eat? Uh,
0: a, lot of, uh, a lot of places. What was the best steak you yeah, no. ever ate in your
1: life? Who? From your father? He's no. Your father? But which steak? Remember the
0: steak?
1: 100 ounce cowboy. Yeah? Close your eyes and relive it. <coughs> <laughs> it was a steak. Nothing that crazy. No, it was a steak. Okay. I once had. Oh, yeah, you go to your restaurant. Ah! Could you couple it, it <laughs> the It's It's physical evidence. Yeah. <laughs> Why am I telling you all this? <laughs> what? Oh. oh, my gosh. I, you want me to start crying? No, really, you yeah. want me to start crying? Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Cry, cry, yeah. cry, It's going
0: to
1: take oh, a second. Cry, <laughs> cry.
0: All
1: right. My first team in Masechta, Amen. my first scene in Masechta, I was 12 years old, I finished Masechta Sukkah. I skipped basketball that whole summer. I made a scene for my Zaydi's yard site. I was 12 years old. My parents came up from camp, came up to camp. I stood in front of the whole camp, and I made a CM. I still have the copies tomorrow that my, my Rebbe gave me inscribed, and I could not believe that I was able to finish him a masekta. I, If I start talking about my first see as Shas, I'll be bawling. What should I tell you? I can relive thousands of experiences that would bring tears to my eyes where all I thought in that moment was I don't know what I did to be Zaycha to have been able to do what I just did. I felt like you feel when you stood up there overwhelmed with HaKar Sataif Takadish HaKadosh which I tell you, I don't know why whether it was the birth of a child, whether it was saying vidui with several people as they braved their last. Being zaychah to save two people from choking. There are things in life that touch us in an eternal way. The reason why you can relive a meaningful experience is because the neshama is eternal. The guf is very, very, very temporary. And that a, sca- a stake, unless it touches a deeper place, I have a picture in my computer of Rabbi David Feinstein, Levracha, having a steak dinner in reserve Cut with a man who he went to yeshiva with, who never got married, never had children. And every year... On his birthday, Reb David Feinstein, Zeik of Racha, took this man out for dinner and served him steak. Now that's a steak you can relive. <coughs> so one day I realized that I'm not any happier than I was as a child driving a red bike. It's just not working. The watches aren't working, the title's not working. The cars aren't working. It's just not working. And I'm not stupid enough to keep going and thinking, oh, because I don't have the new Tesla. Or maybe I don't have the this. Or maybe I don't have the that. One day I stopped and realized this is just not working. When something doesn't work, you try something else. Chaim says in introduction to Nefesh HaKhayim that the sole reason why the world was created the sole reason why you were here, the sole reason that we suffer ups and downs and anxiety and everything and all the stresses of life is for one reason alone that one person should do for another. Period. This is why we're all here. And one day you realize that when you buy yourself something... That memory will not be there. You'll never be able to relive. That will not touch you in a deep, deep way. But when you buy something for somebody else, when you touch somebody else, when you inspire, when you instill meaning, when you help your friend out, I want to tell you an unbelievable story. I don't know if Rabbi Gissinger's book is here, but there's a book called At Any Hour, I have to say this book, I've read it three times. It's beyond. It's beyond. It's crazy. Rabbi Gissinger was a goddle, a man who had the whole Kalal vying for his time. There's a story in that book. One day he calls up his nephew, Moshe Roman, and he says, Maishi, we have to take a trip. And they drive from Lakewood to Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn. And when they get there, Rabbi Gissinger pops the trunk and takes out a ladder and a brown bag. And he goes, what are we doing? He goes, we'll see. Knocks on the door. Man opens up the door, an old man. And he says to him, where is it? And he points to a light fixture. (coughs) He opens up the the ladder, takes a bulb out of his brown bag, climbs up the ladder, changes a light bulb, closes the ladder, gives the man a big kiss on the cheek and leaves. They drive back to Lakewood and his nephew is, he's plotting. So he turns to his uncle and he says, what was that? He says, what was it?" I'll tell you what that was. This man, he has one son, he lives in Texas, has nothing to do with him. He lives all alone. He calls me at least once a week to bemoan his life, how miserable he is. And today, well last night, he called me up and said, and on top of everything else, the one working light bulb in my kitchen burnt down. And I have nobody to change it. So what does Rebbe Gissinger, the one of the most busy people in the entire universe do? He takes a light bulb, he takes a stepladder, he drives an hour and a half each way to change a light bulb. Could you imagine Rechaim Knievsky coming to your house to change a light bulb? But what did he really do? He gave this man dignity and it took three hours of his life. I want you to stop every single day and think about that. When I was a child, a kid in yeshiva committed suicide. He went up to the roof and he jumped. He was a, a Bachar in tar I I in Tar-Tamima and his brother was my chavrusa. And I went to the Levaya. And Rabuving finds Zeket Salik of Rakh was talking. And he said, Then the tyrant says, Your Adam haze. by Egla Rufa. We have to be able to say, My hands did not spill this blood. And he said, idea Who knows? If one of you would have said good morning to him this morning and given a pat on the back if he wouldn't be here today. And I walked away and I thought about that. We get so involved with what we're going through. But really we're here to notice what other people are going through. What do you mean? What am I? What can I offer? I'm a nobody. What? That's the rabbi's job. The therapists. Who am I? Yeah, the Eitzhahari is very good. You're nothing. You're a nobody. You have your own problems. What could you possibly do for somebody else? It's such baloney. It's not even funny. You want a life of pleasure? You want a life of ecstasy? You don't need to sniff anything. You don't need to drink anything. Become addicted to doing for others. You don't have to do anything big. Guy loses his job. You take him out for coffee. And you just say, I'm here for you. Somebody's going through something. You just say, I wish I could help you, but I can't. But I want you to know I Feel for you. We we all need today chizuk and every person can give chizuk. There was a girl who came to me. I used to teach in our Nava. She came to my office. She'd been through every modality of therapy. She'd been on every medication you can imagine for depression. And she says to me I give up. I said okay. Now we could talk. Let's try this. I'm sending to you for th- to three months. Three months of chesed. I want you to find two projects a week that you're involved with. I don't care what it is bringing food to people in the house, going to visit children in the hospital. I want you to become somehow constructively involved in doing for others. And I want you to come back after two months with the report of how it went. She didn't have to wait two months. Two weeks later, she felt like a different person. She felt like a different person. So the second thing that I learned in life is that this is Ghanedim. Rabbi Kalish goes to sleep every night, I am sure, if he does sleep, beyond exhausted. Beyond exhausted. There's nothing more exhilarating than going to sleep at night knowing that you squeezed out every single ounce of what you have inside of you every moment of that day for the sake of another person. And there's nothing more miserable than going to sleep at night and knowing that my entire day was about me, 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 me. When you take that idea one step further, you start to realize why HaTadosh Baruch puts us through challenges. There's a great book out there called Man's Search for Meaning, written by Victor Dr. Viktor Frankl. I might almost call him my Rebbe, but it's a, it's a very, very interesting book. It's how he survives the Holocaust. And he does it by finding meaning in the black, bleak period that he had to live through. And what he did was he realized that one day all this can be utilized to help somebody else. I'm speaking to every one of you. Every one of you. I don't know what each of you have been through. You know what you've been through. We don't believe that anything happens by chance. We believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu put us in the situation that we were in. As horrible, as depressing, as difficult as it was. And we have a hard time grappling with that. And you never judge somebody who lived through the Holocaust and then ran as far away from Yiddishkeit as possible. Or somebody that was violated as a child. Or somebody that grew up in an abusive home. We cannot judge such people because we cannot understand their nisyoinness. But one thing we know, that it didn't happen to us by chance. That a Kaddish Baruch this was part of the script. But how could that be? Why would I have to live through that? And it has to go back to the purpose of life. Which is, that one day I'm going to stand at a podium, and I'm going to have 300 kids listening to me. And they're going to hear a story. And they're going to say, I know what you went through and let me tell you how I got out of it. And that's what Viktor Frankl was envisioning throughout his years in Auschwitz. That one day I will help the world with what I'm experiencing right now. When I was a kid, they asked me to write a composition. They wanted one word that you wanted on your tombstone. And why? That was the question. What's one word that you wanted written on your tombstone, and why is that word important to you? I came home, I told my mother what it was, and she says, how on earth are you going to come up with that? I said, oh, I know the word. She said, you know the word? I said, of course I know the word. What's the word? I said, wisdom. She said, wisdom? Why Wisdom. And I said, because the definition <laughs> of wisdom is applied knowledge. Right? Applied knowledge, meaning I've learned something, I've internalized it, I own it, and now I can help others do the same thing. Right? If you've gone through something yourself, you know the darkness of the moment. When people come to me and they say they're unemployed, Do you know what it's like to be unemployed? You know, know, any of you ever met someone who's unemployed? For a father of children, a husband, to lose their job is for their entire self-esteem to be completely shattered. You feel utterly useless. You feel like you fell off a moving train and that train just passed you by and that that's where you're going to stay. When people come to my office and they tell me I'm unemployed and they start to cry, I cry with them. You know why I cry with them? Because with everything that Baruch Hashem I have going for me, I spent six months unemployed. It was absolutely horrible. I don't want to get out of bed in the morning. I would sit on the floor and cry and I would tell my wife, I don't know why you married me, but you made a big mistake because I'm an absolute, utter loser. And I remember asking myself, why did HaKadosh Baruch do this to me? And the answer is, my friends, because when somebody sits in my office and tells me they're unemployed, my heart, seizes up my stomach starts to do flips and I stop and I say I have to fix this because unemployment is not abstract to me and neither are many of the other things that people come and tell me we live in a world where everybody is suffering in some way shape or form whether they're willing to admit it or not I don't care what kind of house they live in. I don't care what kind of car they live in. Trust me, I hear this all day. The problems are unbelievable. But I want to tell you something. The problems of the next generation, I cannot help. You are going to help the problems of the next generation. You are the ones that are going to be standing at this podium 20 years from now. And there's going to be a... Bunch of boys in that room with all kinds of unimaginable histories. And you have to get here to help them. And right now, whatever you may be going through or what you've been through is to prepare you to stand at this podium so that you can be the source of wisdom to that generation. Because at some point, I will become out of touch with the problems of the generation. But you won't be out of touch. When you find meaning in challenge, when you find meaning in darkness, when you find meaning of what was done unto you, and you say, I cannot change the past, but I can change the future... And I can draw knowledge and wisdom and strength from this and not let whatever it was define who I am. Now you're living a meaningful, fulfilling life and every day is a treasure. One more and then if the rabbi lets, we'll have some questions. The last thing, and I, please, nothing here is Musser. Nothing. I'm talking to myself. On that last note, at the end of the day, we're all accountable to ourselves. The clear difference between successful people, people that go up to the top in whatever it is they're trying to do, is that they take responsibility for themselves. Yeshiva is a wonderful place. There's structure, there's a mashkiach, there's a rebbe. When I grew up, there was rules for everything. When I had to show up, when I was allowed to leave, where I was allowed to go, and you were living to please somebody else. And so that somebody could check a box and say, you came on time, you left on time, you got a good mark, all wonderful. Somebody was holding you accountable. Your parents, your rabbi, it didn't matter who it was. And then one day, all that ends. There's no role books, there's no regents. There's no mashkiach. There's just you. That's it. Some people take responsibility for their lives and some people spend their lives blaming and complaining. My Rebbe did this to me. This one did that to me. This is not fair. That's not fair. All true. True, true, true. But at the end of the day, it's not going to help you anything. At the end of the day, one day, you realize that you are accountable to yourself. Even if you're a oh, big Yerusha and a Kaddish who one day is going to sit down, and he's going to read back everything that you did and didn't do, even if you can integrate that, honestly, I can't. I can't. It's too abstract for me. It's too abstract for me. I just can't. I can't relate to a Torah one day in Shemayim and I'm going to shiver and I'm not going to remember my name. That doesn't motivate me in the morning. It just doesn't. What motivates me is that I know that I'm accountable to myself. I know that I'm responsible for myself. I know what I need to do and I know why I need to do it and I hold myself accountable. And if I can't produce... If I can't produce, I have nobody to blame but myself. And in my book, I will talk about being a perfectionist, which I am. But the reality is, one day you wake up and realize, this is my life. And I have two choices. I could succeed, but three choices. I could be mediocre, I could be a failure, or I can be a raging success. I don't know about you guys, but I had to be successful. I couldn't live with myself. In whatever it was, I just knew that a Koshberku didn't put me onto this world to be average or below average. This we call in Hebrew a sheifa. Inspired living means that you absolutely internalize. Rav Nachman of Breslov says that the Sahara will convince you that such words, and I'm speaking now, were meant for other people. Rabbi Kalish is an extraordinary person. That person is an extraordinary person. But I was created to be Regular. I'm different. It's not true. This is your choice. You want to be extraordinary? There is a path to be extraordinary. Extraordinary means that you are taking what HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave you, you're maximizing it, and you are inspiring the world with it. And when you're acting in that way, you have a feeling of such utter fulfillment. It's euphoric when you know that you are living your mission. So those are my three points. Individuality, embracing the real pleasures of life, and taking responsibility for your life. Any questions? What did they, want to you to do? they didn't care okay. they're like what does that mean I'm like what which part didn't you understand <laughs> you revealed yeah. anyone have a question yes <laughs> So his question was, how did I move on from this sucks, why did it happen, to now I'm going to use it to my advantage. So I, 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 the word closure, is, everyone likes that word, right? Closure. Let's put closure on this. Let, let me just define what closure means for me. Okay? Closure means to me that there's a room inside of me where I lock stuff up. It's a dark room, it's got a lot of cobwebs in it, a lot of moldy corpses laying around over there. Like in a horror movie, it's that room you don't want to go into. And that's where I lock stuff up. I'm very visual in this way. And there's a lot of stuff that happened to me that's locked up in that room. And there are certain things that trigger me, and I go into that room, and I stay away from those things as far as, as, far as possible. So, so rule number one is I realize what's in there sometimes you never get rid of it and sometimes you don't even want to get rid of it right if i don't feel the pain of what somebody else is telling me because in my subconscious is still there well i'm not going to be as motivated right i don't want to forget what it felt like to be very poor and embarrassed and make fun of all that stuff i don't want it i don't want to forget it What I do is I want to move on from it. So the first thing I do is, while it's happening now, literally while it's happening, I'm stopping and I'm saying, okay, what can I learn from this? And how am I going to help people with this? I literally switch into that mode immediately. As it's happening, I'm already thinking like Viktor Frankl did in the Holocaust. He said, okay, I got it. This is going to be painful. This is going to hurt. I dab in the Kajboku ten times that it shouldn't happen, but here I am, it's happening. But now I'm starting to take notes. And by the way, I do, I take notes. I write down what I felt like, how horrible it was, how difficult it was. I'm now gathering research data. Because when I get out of this now, and then I go into how do I fix this mode. And I'm tracking all this so that one day I can have another chapter in my book. The first thing is to embrace what I said doesn't matter why it happened. It doesn't matter who did it to you. That one day will have absolutely no significance. What's significant is what am I learning from this and how am I going to pull myself out. And the quicker I switch into that mode of seeing this as an opportunity, that's I get I get much less scarred. And then I immediately, there are so many things that I've written lectures on or spoken about that happened to me recently. Challenges that happened to me recently that very quickly I sat down and I said, okay, I need to write about this. I need to talk about this. And then very quickly it becomes a lecture. Question? I understand that
0: like, if you're like, really wealthy and you buy, not that stuff will necessarily make you happy. But the actual, Becoming
1: a very wealthy person is that not alone? Uh, like part, like thing that think about it. In and of itself, no. You, it well, let me let me make clear. I was given now. I was enabled. Money is an enabler, right? Now I have the means. Now the question is to do what? Yes. Going from not having the means... L- let me make this clear. When you don't have enough and you have enough, that's an unbelievable leap. Right? Not having parnos and having parnos is unbelievable. And that's a bracha for my Kodesh. bro. we down for it every single day. Right? But what, what, what does enough mean? Is the question. Right? If I could pay my bills and I could buy my children clothing that's an unbelievable feeling that I have a card so a every single day that I could pay tuition on time in the beginning of the year first check send in a check I thank a Kodesh every single day every single day that I could pay my tuition in the beginning of the year and that is beyond so that, that's unbelievable but that's not wealth wealth is extra right? you don't think that has any effect right? it has an amazing effect if you use it for the right reasons, if it becomes about more, bigger, better, the answer is you're on a very dangerous track. You're never going to be happy. Never. I have a, I have a, 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 a in my book that at least five Goyim have written to me and said changed their life. Yeah. By the way, thousands of Goyim have read my book. Catholics, Muslims, Hindus. I don't know how it's full of Tyra, but don't ask me. The var is from my great uncle, the great Hafla. You know who that flaw was? So the Gemara says Mishiash writes a Messiah. Somebody who has one wants two. Mm-hmm. Somebody who has two wants four. Somebody who has four wants eight. Somebody who has eight. So Cast of Law, well more talking about. Why don't we just say and Manra writes up seven hundred billion? I don't know what's what's uh, Elon Musk worth today? Stock was one ninety nine and change this morning. 204. What? Two hundred and four <laughs> billion? Yeah. Um, right so 205 billion because I need to have one billion more than Elon Musk. <laughs> Why does it matter to say that? <laughs> what's, what, what's going on? What's going on? Anyone else? It's not about a better goal, he's now doubling my half Okay. He's not about score. Stop Says the half If you knew that you're not going to be happy, with 204 billion, that you need 205 billion. And I said to you, and I convinced you of this. You knew standing here at the beginning of this thing that I know that 204 billion dollars will not even make me happy. What will you do? You'll open up a yeshiva called Waterbury. You'll say, you know what? That 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 road is not for me. I mean, uh, seriously, come on. I mean, it's not gonna happen. Even if I dreamt that I could be happy with 205 billion, which of course Elon Musk is trying to turn it into 500 billion, but that's the whole thing. But if I knew that I will never be happy, what's the point? Comes the 8th already says, so oh, come on, seriously. If you have one, all you need is two. With two, you're done. I'll never forget, ever forget this phone call. I called up my wife, I walked into my boss's office. Many years ago, I was in corporate finance, I was making $50,000 a year, $50,000 a year. I got an offer from Bank of New York for $80,000. I wasn't going to go upstairs to my boss and say, I need a $30,000 raise, because that's insane. You don't go up and say, I need a $30,000 raise, right? So I went up and I quit, because like you don't walk in and say, I need a $30,000 raise. So my boss says, why are you quitting? I said, what do you mean, why? <laughs> I just got an offer from Bank of New York for 80000 He goes, no, I'll give you $100. What? I'll give you 100 what? I said, what? $100,000? You're
0: it? Yeah. Okay, fine, I'll stay. <laughs> Here's the phone call.
1: Bubby, that's my wife. you sitting down? Mm-hmm. I am going to earn six figures. Correct? Right? How old do you think I felt rich with six figures? Huh? How long? A week? Two weeks? A month? When it quickly became I need that 150. But when I get to 150, I'm done. Gamar so is telling you such an unbelievable thing. The guy who has one and wants two doesn't think for a second that he needs four. If you tell him no, you're never going to be happy, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. I'm telling you, $10 million, I'm done. I will... Ma- Can I ask you a question? If I gave you $10 million, would you be done? Yes. Yes. Guarantee you want <laughs> to
0: do it. Guarantee it. He has it. He has Do it. Do, do it. Do it. It's do
1: inconceivable. Do it's inconceivable that when you have won, that 10 million will not do it. No. Do you want to hear this conversation, Howard, a client? Walking home from lunch. He has a friend, Brian. His client made, at the time, he's retired today, he was making 2.6 <laughs> million a year. A year? Is that a lot of money?
0: No. Yeah. yeah? No. no. <laughs> no. <laughs>
1: and I asked about his friend, Brian. I said, How's Brian doing? He goes, Brian. Brian <laughs> makes real money. <laughs> I said, He goes, 12 million. Now, seriously 2.6 million was not real money anymore. 12 million was real money I bet if I took Brian out for lunch and I asked about Seth Seth would be making real money because he makes 35 million (laughs) let me tell you something federal this is not a Gomorrah this is reality it's reality you understand that I know people that live from paycheck to paycheck on social security that are happier than clients of mine that drive Rolls Royces. Now that, oh, that's such a cliche. Money doesn't buy you happiness. Come on, seriously. I'd rather be miserable in a Lexus than happy in a Honda. I've heard every single thing in the world. I've heard it all. I don't know about you, Kevin I just want to be happy. Five golden retrieves.
0: So go it. You got
1: it. Can adopt one thing. So let me explain something to you. In finance, there's a word, in psychology, there's a word, it's called the utilitarian value of money. Which is that a first number of dollars serves you to utility value. I can afford to buy a house, I can afford to put a roof on my head, I can afford to have clean water and medical and all the things that are basic needs of a person. And there, the curve goes up very quickly, right? From going from 50000 to 100000 from going from a little rental apartment to owning your own home, which has enough beds for everyone to have their own, and enough bathrooms so you don't kill each other in the morning. That's a very upward sloping curve. Then, beyond that, it starts to flatten out and then go down. It actually becomes detrimental. Don't believe me. Read Malcolm Gladwell's book on this. It's absolutely true. But, to a a Jew who has a Rebbe, who's a, a person who knows that money is entrusted to you as a fiduciary. You could change the world. You could change the world. You can pay somebody's tuition so that he can go to Eretz and make something out of himself. You can pay off somebody's credit, um, grocery bill who doesn't have a father. You can buy shoes for children in Eretz Yisrael that can't afford shoes you can change the world with money, or you can buy your ninth watch. It's up to you. That's free will. One more question, then we'll stop. Well, I really have two
0: questions. Yes.
1: That was the first question.
0: Um, so, first off, um, you, you said multiple times how when you're in those toughest Times sometimes you would turn to Hashem and you would try to figure out what to do. Um for myself when I was in my toughest times I would turn away from Hashem and lose that lose that amount of money that I had how did you how did you not turn away from religion and throw that away and, and you know as if Hashem wasn't there.
1: That's a very enough. good question. The bean only eaten, very very powerful safer rights. His question was, why did I turn to Hashem? Why didn't I turn away from Hashem? I cannot say that I always didn't turn away from Hashem. The Gemara says that a person is not judged in their moment of extreme grief. And we should never look back, or Machman says, at times when we disconnected and let that moment or that period define us. Because when a person's going through tremendous hardship and his first reaction is anger and turning away from my Kaddish Berkhu. You say blame? Blame, yeah, blame. A girl once came to my office, I'll never forget this, a girl from Arnava. She showed up in my office on Park Avenue and she literally stormed in. She, she, like told the, she had a meeting and she just walked into my office, sat down and started spewing such profanity about a Baruch who you can't even imagine. Every word was F you, who knows what. When she was finished, I was smiling. She said, what are you smiling about? I said, I'm smiling because I'm so jealous of you. She said, you're jealous of me? Why are you jealous of me? that HaKadosh Baruch is so real to you that you could get so angry at him and so jealous of you. How do you have such a relationship with a Baruch Hu that he could have angered you so much? And she stopped And She thought I was crazy.
0: That's coming from someone that already has that anger.
1: Right. So when you say, turn away from HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what are well, you blaming him? Right. Which means that you actually believe in him and that you actually know that he influences your life and that he is to blame and I am going to blame you because if not for you this couldn't have happened says the Bina Ethan. a mommy gives a little child a patch right? what does the child do? Christ. cries and what does he do? he runs away from his mother but what does he do after that? he runs back, he runs back. because where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? I go back to my mommy. Growing up means each time you run away a little bit less and you run back a little bit quicker. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that Kosh Baruch is not going to give you that patch when you're 40 or when you're 50 or when you're 60 and that you're not going to first react as running away. It's, the other thing I learned was is that it's hard to internalize this sometimes when you're younger, but you get older and you start to really hap this. We don't do anything for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Akadosh doesn't need us to put on filling in the morning. HaKadosh Baruch Hu doesn't need us to do anything. Now, this is... When I grew up, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was a vending machine. He's a vending machine. He put in the money, You push the button, out comes the wise potato chips. That's it. I give Meister money, he gives me back money. I dive in three times a day, I don't die of cancer. And you start to think that you get it. I understand how this works. Yeah, I'm a good boy, and I behave, and I don't talk much in horror. Sometimes I do, but then I stop myself, and then I go to Yom Kipp and I cry. (laughs) Please, don't let me die, please, please, please. please. And then I go back and I die, and I think I kind of figure this whole thing out. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, BAM! What, what did happen? Why I was being so good? I was I was doing everything I was supposed to. What how could that be? It's not fair, it doesn't work out, what? And then I go, you know what? I'll teach you a lesson. <laughs> Note filling for a week! Ha I'll show you. Yeah, 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 I'll talk lesson or yeah yeah. I'll skip a couple of days of stuff, you know what I mean? See how it feels when you don't get what you want. Akash <laughs> <laughs> Baruchu. Sound crazy, right? But come on, seriously? Is it not a part of every one of us that feels that way? I'm gonna teach Akash Baruch a lesson. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. Mamulah Shayfalakh, we all go through this. If you don't go through this, please come and tell me why. Because I want to learn from you. And then one day I realized, do I have any idea what this is about? Do I understand where Akash Baruchu is? Do I understand the concept of infinite and ain't safe? Do I understand that every single thing I do, I do for myself? I don't do anything for Akash Baruchu. Akash doesn't need anything. I can't give Akash Baruchu anything. Yeah, I'm giving him Nachas Ruach. I know what that means. If I don't give him Nachas Ruach, he's in a bad mood. He brings a hurricane. I'm in a bad mood today. <laughs> Made it learn. Oh, somebody's gonna pay for this one. When I'm in a bad mood, somebody. Pay. We had this whole warped idea, and I realized one day that all I'm doing by turning away and getting angry is hurting myself, because I'm gonna be miserable. And I also, you—you you have to read my book. I'm telling you, my, if, if you can't afford my book, I'll give you a copy. I'm serious. I realized that I'm in a war. My whole life is one big chess game against the Sutton. Mm. The Sutton wants me to fail. Period. And he, when I'm disconnected, when I'm angry, when I'm bitter, when I'm vindictive, when I'm blaming, he is sitting there and going, Oh, baby, I love this. I love this. And let me tell you something. There's no enemy in the world that you would do anything to make him happy. But we give him what he wants. And what does he want? He wants us to blame a Kajibar so I'd grown up and I've realized that I'm just living for myself. I'm not living for college Baruch Hu. I had a client, his name was Andy Burian. Go look him up. He was an unbelievable person. Unbelievable person. He wrote a book. He once spoke for me to 300 college kids. He lived through four death camps. He's in my book, I think once or twice. And at the end, somebody asked him, Mr. Burian, could you tell me how after everything you lived through, you remained religious? And you know what he said to them? Some people are religious because they're afraid of going to hell. Not me. I've already been there. I'm not going there again. I'm religious because I want to be here. That's where his words were. One day, I realized that I want to learn Gemara. One day, I realized that I want to daven. I want to keep Shabbos. My kids know that if, if somebody walked into my house one day and said, my colleague, you were mixed up at birth. You're Catholic. You're not who you think you are. They did a DNA test on me. The next Shabbos, I would do nothing differently. Nothing differently. I wouldn't pick up my smartphone. I wouldn't get into my car. One day, I decided, I want to keep Shabbos. I want to learn Gemara. I want to dab with a pair of tefillin on my hands. I want to do it. I want to be Jewish. So now, it's not about punishing God Kaddish Baruch Hu anymore. It's about not punishing myself when you reach that point the whole battle goes away i would rather i don't know i'd rather kill myself than disconnect myself from what brings my neshama pleasure but it takes time but you'll get there
0: thank you everybody Rabbi Sai usually a song for visiting yeah, people. Yeah. Before I want to quickly, Rav Rav, to rush. I want to thank Rabbi. I'm going to ask Zevi to come forward. Quick, oh, two quick songs. <laughs> They'll pay up with a song. Zevi, take it away. One, ashi yon mishkan ke roi de kho zevo
1: bem sti parte ira rada ira ira khe in bi khaste Ya-ya-ra-ram,
0: ya-ra-ram, ya-ra-ram, Adam,